Hello, podcast listener friends. What a year we've been through together. Thank you for helping us make season six such a fantastic season of this podcast. If it weren't for your questions, we would not have had the rich conversations that we were able to have this year. I also want to thank you for putting up with the journey my voice has been on. It was a year ago that I was prepping for surgery in early January so that I could correct the lesions that were a part of my vocal cords that had really hindered my ability to broadcast. It's been sort of a up and down journey this year, but I am finally in the healthiest place my voice has been in the last, I don't know, 20 years. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for putting up with episodes that sometimes lacked inflection (laughs) and clarity. Thank you for caring more about the content than how that content sounded over a microphone. We also want to thank you for the five-star ratings and the beautiful reviews that you've posted all over the place. This podcast has had over 2 million downloads and we are so grateful that it is making such a difference in your lives. The whole team is grateful to you for expressing your gratitude and what you get out of this show. It was two months ago that I received an unusual email, someone asking to be interviewed on this very popular show. When I saw who it was, I knew immediately that I wanted to have that opportunity to share him with this audience. That person is today's guest on this podcast. Stay tuned. Today's guest on our podcast is none other than award-winning playwright and best-selling author, Ken Ludwig. His book, How to Teach Your Children Shakespeare, is the subject of our conversation today. It is a bestseller published by Penguin Random House and hugely popular with homeschooling families. But Ken is also known for being this award-winning playwright. In fact, His current play, Dear Jack, Dear Louise, is the 2020 winner of the Helen Hayes MacArthur Award for Best New Play of the Year. He has produced plays that may be familiar to you, like one called Baskerville, about the Sherlock Holmes classic book, a comedy of tenors, Shakespeare in Hollywood, and Murder on the Orient Express. I think you are going to find him absolutely delightful. One thing that I discovered during our conversation is just how rich the subject matter is for Shakespeare. In fact, by the end of it, I was talking about how much I enjoyed the conversation with the man in my life. And he said to me, can I borrow the book? I think I want to start memorizing some Shakespeare. So tune in. Relax, maybe pour yourself a cup of British tea just to set the mood and listen along as Ken unfolds to you stories from his life as a writer and all that you need to know to ignite a love of Shakespeare in your homeschooling family. Well, welcome, Ken, to our podcast. I'm so thrilled that you are here. Well, thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. 
Your book is obviously hugely popular. And the book I'm talking about, of course, is How to Teach Your Children Shakespeare. And in the homeschooling space, it has just run right through as the go-to book when you are trying to understand how to introduce this archaic language, this ancient playwright. I wanted to ask you how you first got interested in Shakespeare. I'm sure that's a very familiar story that you tell. Well, it is because, you know, Shakespeare it is like a foreign language. And you say, how, how do you first get involved in it enough that you want to learn it and want to read it? And sometimes it's being exposed to a great production, of course. Often that depends on living in enough of a metropolitan area that you can get exposed to them. In my case, I, I grew up in the farm country of Pennsylvania, in southern Pennsylvania, so I could not get exposed to it that way. And what happened was that my parents found a secondhand used copy of an LP, a six, a four LPs, uh, that were Hamlet done by Richard Burton. Because oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. On old records. Old <laughs> records. They found them and they thought... Gee, that's because I was kind of very literary. I was bookish. I was always bookish. And I was about 10 years old. It had been on Broadway, I think, like 10 years before that or something. They found it and they thought I might like it. So they bought it for me for a birthday present. Oh. I listened to it and again and again and just became absorbed in this amazing world and this language. And I couldn't, couldn't put it down. I couldn't stop listening. And, uh, and I memorized tons of it just because of the repetition. Yes, repetition is so key, isn't it? For anything to become personally meaningful, uh, but nothing more important than Shakespeare. I know my very first exposure to Shakespeare, I grew up in Los Angeles and my mother who had been a theater major in college took me to Solving, which is a little sort of um, Scandinavian recreation in California. And they had an outdoor theater where they performed Much Ado About Nothing. I was probably 15 or 16. And I was so stunned that after the first five to 10 minutes where I felt like I couldn't understand a single word, I suddenly got into the cadence. And the next thing you knew, I was laughing hysterically at all of the tropes and the bits and just mesmerized by the fact that I could engage with language. Do you find that to happen even now, or are you immediately into it when you listen to a play? And how common is that for children and students to have to overcome that initial 10-minute, 15-minute barrier? Well, I mean, because for me, it's the lingua franca. It's what I spend so much of my life thinking about and reading. There's, I don't have any transition moment, but I don't think most people do once they get it. You know, Shakespeare just wrote so well and, and the scenes just capture you. It's interesting you chose Much Ado uh, or your mother chose Much Ado. It, it yes. is the greatest comedy ever written. It I agree. never <laughs> fails. It never fails. I look at it as a playwright of comedies in just such awe. Yes, and the, the puns and the and all of the wordplay hold up, which you know often if you look at like an old comedy that's a movie or something, you almost feel like you have to understand that era to get the jokes. Right. And for some reason, much ado, it can be set in any context. I, I taught Shakespeare acting at our local homeschool co-op, and we would pull out those much ado about nothing scenes, and I would let the students decide what sort of modern context they might want to set it in to see how it would hold up. And one of my pair of actors did that 
famous scene with Benedict hiding and they're trying to ensnare him. And they did it as though they were on the beach. And there was a whole beach ball tossing back and forth and hiding behind umbrellas. And it was just amazing how it could feel modern and old all at the same time and yet completely relevant. Perfectly. Exactly right. And there's that moment right after they trick him where the first (laughs) words out of his mouth are, this can be no trick. (laughs) That's the first thing he says. And, you know, Shakespeare was great at certain most moments when he really wants you to listen. He goes into monosyllables. The words are monosyllabic and it's clear as a bell. This can be no trick. Yes. It was very accessible. It's incredible. Gosh. And the moment you said that, of course, I heard Kenneth Branagh because that became our family favorite movie. And all of my kids, all five, have major sections of it memorized. So let's talk about this memorization piece because that's really what your book's about. I remember when my son Noah was about 11 years old and he was in a youth group and the youth leader was an actor. We lived in California at the time. And he said to my son Noah, To be an erudite adult, you need to have the party trick of knowing a little bit of Shakespeare by heart. So I want you to memorize the prologue from Romeo and Juliet and just keep it in your hip pocket as that thing you can always pull out. And that became a little rite of passage in our family to learn the prologue. But you've taken it to a whole other level. Tell me a little bit about that journey with memorization. Well, the journey started with my daughter. She was in first grade and she came home one day and said, uh, spouted a line of Shakespeare. Uh, She said, I know a bank where the wild time blows. And I thought, where the heck did you learn this? Well, her teacher uh, was an English woman who uh, was teaching in the States and had exposed them to a little bit of Shakespeare. And it was Midsummer Night's Dream being often the best way to get your kids involved. So accessible. And um, I thought to myself, because I was spending so much time with Shakespeare, just thinking about it as a playwright, you know, uh, uh, looking how he constructed scenes and constructed acts and then whole plays. Uh, I thought, what if we get in, snuggle up in bed together? What a good excuse to, to ha- be pals for an hour and started to memorize that whole speech, which isn't that long. Uh, And then the next speech, and as a six-year-old, I exposed her to things that rhymed to start with. I know a bank where the wild time blows, where ox slips and the nodding violet grows. You know, so there's all so that that, a little bit like a nursery rhyme in a way. And you wouldn't think six years old. And what she was able to understand at that age was that I explained to her, well. The king and queen of the fairies are having an argument. It's not so hard. You see that on television. And mom and dad are arguing. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and, uh, he gets Puck to find a magic flower. And he wants to tell then use it on on to Tanya. And he tells Puck where to find her. And it's in a beautiful bower of flowers. Mm. So I know a bank where the wild time blows. What's a bank? It's a, it's a grassy slope near a little stream or river. And with a few words, you, the, the, trick, the trick is this, is that you make sure that your children understand every word of each line. What does it mean? 
And if those those words can be complex in in the famous to be or not to be speech, of course, he talks about a bare bodkin. Well, you guys say, what's a bodkin? It was a word we don't use anymore. Well, it's a knife. And once you understand that, you can memorize the passage word after word and understand what it means. And she was mesmerized. She loved it. She couldn't wait for the next one. So within a couple of weeks, we were doing it twice a weekend. We did it on a Saturday. And I thought, oh, she won't want to do too much more. But she asked me to do it again. And then we did a Saturday and a Sunday, one hour each, snuggle up together and learn Shakespeare speeches. Gosh. That's and just so awesome. I, I I love the idea that we can even start with a six-year-old, right? That I remember when my daughter, uh, my second child was about eight years old. We as a family were interested in Shakespeare. My kid's dad was a university professor and he and I both had this longstanding love of Shakespeare. We watched all the movies and we talked about it at home. And I realized when she was about eight years old, she had shown this really strong interest in the language. So we set the table and set up this tea time uh, and we decorated the table with candles. And I used Leon Garfield's Shakespeare stories as an introduction. And we did Midsummer Night's Dream, just the two of us. And she was so captivated that then I went and pulled out my mother's anthology of all of Shakespeare that she had given me. And we went and found those quotes that were actually in this big anthology. It was like a really amazing connection for her to see it go from story to that larger volume. And then over time, my kids became completely enamored. And my two oldest children ended up doing Shakespeare camp locally here in Cincinnati. And then became members of a troupe called the Groundlings and performed in plays with them. And then we, we ended up being ushers as a family at this Shakespeare company. And I think three of my kids have literally seen every Shakespeare play performed live, which I think is a pretty amazing accomplishment. I can't even say that, (laughs) but it's amazing how once you open that door, there's a lot of bandwidth, right? It it doesn't get tiring. It actually gets more engaging. Uh, Tell me a little bit about how Shakespeare has stayed fascinating to you over a lifetime. What holds your interest today? Well, you know, Shakespeare is a world. Unlike many other authors that, that have boundaries, either because they didn't weren't that prolific. I'm a huge Jane Austen fan, and I, oh. and I lecture on Jane Austen. And, you know, she wrote six novels. And no matter what you do, as much as you want to have more novels, you can't get them. That's, that's, and, then, and some juvenilia and, and some, there's some letters right. with her sister. But Shakespeare's boundless. You know, 30, they, 36 plays in the first folio, 37 now, sort of absolutely expected, but uh, respected, but 38, probably 38 uh, plays. And they're, they're boundless. And, and they're so, and aside from the sheer volume of, of it, each one, you could spend your lifetime on Hamlet. You could spend a life on Twelfth Night. And there's a reason that there's thousands of books written by about Shakespeare. It's not because people are just uh, being uh, uh, self-centered about their own views. It's because there's so much to say about him. Yes. Uh, 
It's so rich. He is clearly the greatest author in the English language, no matter how you slice it. Even the French were pretty snotty about wanting to be proud of their language and love Voltaire. You know, they have to admit it, too. You know, and then there's the French have translated him so many times. The great Victor Hugo translations are great, but they're not Shakespeare. Well, sure. Yes. And likewise, we wouldn't want to read. I mean, it's like trying to read Moliere in translation, right? You you have that need to hear it in that original cadence. Well, let's pivot to that very important question that comes up a lot in this moment of diversity. You know, we've talked about Shakespeare being a master of the English language, but there is some pushback in modern academia to promote other literacies, other languages. How do we sustain interest in Shakespeare when there are accusations of racism within his plays, where it might feel like it is sort of this um, esoteric English uh, Western worldview as opposed to promoting sort of this diversity of authorship? Do you experience that pushback at all when you lecture or share about Shakespeare? Well, generally, I don't. And let me tell you, I think, why I don't, because audiences I tend to speak to are pretty well educated and they see the forest for the trees because the issue with Shakespeare isn't that he was white, he was male, he was white, he was male. Someone else is black and they're female or they're in, you know, they're, they're who they are and they speak from their own experience. It, it It's perfectly fair to say, okay, we've spent so much time on Shakespeare and we know him so well, we have to leave an opening, of course, for, you know, whoever, Zadie Smith or whoever, you know, you, you admire as an author who is non-white and has a different experience to, uh, experiences to bring to the page. Well, of course we do. I don't think there's an intelligent Shakespeare lover in the world uh, I was on the board of the Folger Shakespeare Library for 10 years until recently, uh, on the Board of Governors. And there is no one on that board or who runs the place who would for an instant say, oh, loving Shakespeare and studying Shakespeare means you, you, you look less at Zadie Smith? Of course not. You embrace it. And I guarantee you that the, the, the real honestly good, great authors of color and diversity, of all kinds of diversity, would be the first ones to say, oh my God, you know, this is this was the bedrock of the English language. If I'm writing in English, of course I'm using Shakespeare in some way. So it doesn't mean we don't read Shakespeare. It means that we put him in the context of our time. And that's a very wonderful, healthy thing to do. Oh, it's a fabulous response. In fact, one of the thoughts I had while you were speaking was about the musical Hamilton. Uh, And I actually flagged in your book when I was looking through it, the Macbeth soliloquy that you talk about with tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. That's a line in a song that was written by Lin-Manuel Miranda. He draws from Shakespeare into his modern, very modern rendition of what a musical could be today. And that was one of the things I wondered if you could comment on the versatility um, and sort of the cultural touchstone that Shakespeare is. We used to tell our kids, the reason we want you to understand Shakespeare is so you'll get all the inside jokes 
because they're everywhere, right? <laughs> no matter what you're watching or listening to, whether it's SpongeBob SquarePants all the way up to musicals on theater, Shakespeare is so embedded that the tropes and the storylines and even the quotes seem to be that rich source material for many writers. Tell me a little bit about that soliloquy, though. Do you have it memorized and what does it mean to you? I, I do. I do. Let me comment on your point about yes. uh, uh, Lynn, Lynn's wonderful musical, which is putting those words into someone of that period, uh, the, the Shakespeare words. Well, you know, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson were particular lovers oh. of Shakespeare. They adored it, and they visited when, when of course, uh, they, when they were abroad on behalf of the United States uh, before the uh, sort of during and right after the Revolutionary War, trying to raise funds for the United States, the new United States. They visited Stratford together, and oh, wow. Jefferson went down on his knees and kissed the earth to be in Stratford, the home of Shakespeare. They adored Shakespeare. Adams talked about him all the time and he quotes him all the time and in the letters with Abigail. So, you know, our rich heritage is laced with Shakespeare. Yes. Uh, the uh, soliloquy referred to the, the uh, well, I'm not in the theater, so I can say the Macbeth soliloquy. Right, right. <laughs> we must not name the play, right? <laughs> right. Um, yes, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays are lighted, have, have lighted fools the way to dusky death. Out, out, brief candle, life's but a walking shadow. Uh, a mere pl uh, player who struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. Yeah, I haven't looked at it in years and years. That'll work. I just got chills anyway. <laughs> it's <so laughs> powerful. It's great stuff. It's it's, it's beyond great stuff. And I, the thing that I've noticed, I'm imagining this happens to you too. Um, I'm in my, I, I'm almost sixty now, and I've loved Shakespeare since I was sixteen. And it's amazing how his breadth of speaking to the human condition spans from birth until death. And so I will find myself connecting to different lines based on whatever stage of development I'm in as a person. And so as you were just stating those, I thought, you know, I've, with the pandemic and with my aging process, I have a much different feeling about the end than I did when I heard those words back in high school and read it in our theater context, right? So right, right. We can be told what it's about, but we don't feel it. And you know that cadence. And then you, as you get more mature, you start recognizing why do these speeches speak to us. And mm -hmm. partly it's it's just what's exactly what they have to say. And partly it's how Shakespeare presents them by mm -hmm. using iambic pentameter and then and the the flexibility of that form of language. Not I don't mean. Exact iambic pentameter is a form of verse. It's a form of poetry uh, that goes da 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 da. Short, long, short, long, short, long. Five of those is pentameter, I, and iamb is da dum. So the foot. And then he, and, and there's some very regular, very regular lines, of course, the opening of Twelfth Night. If music be the food of love, play on. Oh. Perfect iambic pentameter, uh, regular iambic pentameter. If music be the food of love, play on. But then you get to he 
by varying the verse, he gives you that chill that you feel when you hear that uh, Macbeth line, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. He drives the line along because, because you are walking along the way to death. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And I, I remember when uh, we were working with Shakespeare with these students to learn how to act it. And I used a book called Teaching Shakespeare. What is it? Clues to Acting Shakespeare, I think was the name of the book. Anyway, they had us walking and saying the verse with heel-toe action. Do you coach students in how to deliver these soliloquies? Uh, I don't. I don't. My two children, <laughs> yeah, nobody else. No. Uh, it's quite a it's quite a journey, but I found it really exciting. So they would walk around the classroom. We'd be working on one speech together, and we would be going foot heel toe, heel toe, heel toe. And you would run up against when it was either irregular or not as comfortable. And you know, it became um, this very natural experience. But it has to, it had to be coached. But what's interesting is once we coached it. You notice that even our natural speech pattern has that sort of rhythm to it, and it's it's quite it's quite powerful. That's indeed why he wrote in iambic pentameter, because iambic pentameter is the verse form that most closely uh, mimics our natural speech. Wow, the length of our phrases and sentences. Mm. The, the the French don't use that; they use an Alexandrian that has six beats in it. And it may be that that more closely matches French. Their speech, yeah. Interesting. So, what's your favorite play? Do you have one? <laughs> <laughs> I used to, for years, think it was Twelfth Night, mm. and I, and I still do. I just love every word of it. Its complexity and depth is unfathomable. It's always interesting. It's a comedy, but it is the most touching. It's the only play that always makes me cry at the end when. Viola and Sebastian finally see each other, a pair of twins, identical twins. And she thinks that her brother, from the beginning of the play, she thinks her brother has been drowned and lost to her so that a part of her, a part of her is missing until she sees him and, and says, if nothing lets to make us happy both, but this, my masculine usurped attire, you know, don't don't recognize me until I take this masculine attire off and then embrace me for I am vile. Ah, ah, ah. You know, it gives you talk about chills. It, it's magnificent. As a practical playwright, writing plays every day of my life. You know, it's so great that in Hamlet, ha- Hamlet being sort of the perfect, the only play that is just perfect in every way. Uh, they're so unattainable that in my dotage, I've gotten to the point of going, ah, you, no one will ever write anything like that. And I've come to really particularly love Much Ado About Nothing because it feels attainable. <laughs> it's it's the sitcom of not. the Shakespeare oeuvre, right? <laughs> it's, the, it's the friends of the Shakespeare work. Uh, but you know i love that you brought up those three that's amazing because when we read 12th night with my kids we created popsicle stick characters to keep track of all the mistaken identities and it became a favorite with us and then of course hamlet uh, i was going to ask you if you had a favorite actor who has performed hamlet do you have do you prefer one over another are they all interesting to you 
Richard Burton. Yes, of course, because of your early, I mean, he's brilliant. I remember going to see the movie with the Kenneth Branagh version. Um, I had a newborn baby with me in a car seat that I had to nurse during these three hours. But I have to say, I thought Kenneth Branagh's sort of machine gun delivery of those soliloquies was one of the most impressive feats of endurance I've ever seen. It really, really took my breath away. Uh, Did you like his version? There's so many great uh, performances because the part is so great. Yes. And if you have a really good actor, he's going to tear into it like nobody's business. And so I think it has, of course, spawned so many great. I was watching the Olivier, great Olivier movie. Yes. Saw that in high school. And that was so moving. Yeah. I mean, he's he's superlative. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, we've already talked about Much Ado, which is for sure my enduring favorite because it was my introduction and I enjoyed it so thoroughly. So tell me a little bit about what it took to preserve this collection of Shakespearean plays. Because you write about that in your book, and I just thought that would be fun for our audience to hear you describe. Well, it is the most wonderful story, and it's so stirring and touching. Shakespeare died in 1616. And I also, when I was teaching my kids soliloquies, I was also trying to teach them a little bit about timelines and and dates. And well, 1564 to 1616, that's that's uh, that's Shakespeare, and, and and it's really interesting that um, uh, Cervantes died the same day Shakespeare did, and it's interesting that uh, Michelangelo died the year that Shakespeare was born, 1564. So in 1616, he dies, and his acting company, and everyone in London recognized that this man was a genius, and he had provided them with so much entertainment and joy and profundity during his life. They felt, well, how could we let his works die with him? Mm. Now, the, the, the way publishing worked at the time was this. Plays were not looked upon as great literature, sort of by definition. They, people would normally might publish a volume of poems or a volume of history. You could get Plutarch, you could get Ovid printed, but you usually didn't. There were no plays that were printed, except during a playwright's lifetime. If he had a very popular play, they would, uh, some, they being some, some printer would, would print just that play in a small format like our paperbacks. Uh, which was called a quarto. And it was called a quarto because you took a big piece of paper. This, the, uh, uh, your, your listeners can't see me, but if you take your hands and spread them apart, you have a big piece of paper and you fold it once. And that would be called, if you open that and close that and open that and close that, that's a folio size. And if you fold it again, that's a quarto size. So it's a small, it's a smaller piece of paper, and and they would print these haphazardly. How would they print them? How did they get Shakespeare's words? Well, it was really interesting. They would send pirates, piratical uh, uh, writers, into the plays and have them scribble as much as they could at a time. 
They would get copies. At the time, nobody had the whole play because uh, Shakespeare would write it out by hand, and they would have something called sides. The, to, the, to, to this day, when you were an actor, you get the side, S-I-D-E, a side, your, your part. They didn't have the whole play. They only had their own part that they had. Well, the printer might get a hold of, of uh, uh, Festy's lines in Twelfth Night but not have Sir Toby's lines. Sir Toby Belch has the largest number of lines in 12 minutes. So these were haphazard. So there came to be known uh, as good quartos and bad quartos. The good quartos may have been printed, we think, maybe from Shakespeare's whole manuscripts, because they're pretty accurate often. The bad quartos are these absolute hodgepodge pieces of work that are, some speeches are sort of right and some aren't, and they have wrong names for characters. Those are the bad quartos. So Shakespeare dies in 1616, and two men who were in his acting company, Hemings and Condal. Hemings and Condal were friends. They used to drink with Shakespeare. They were in the acting company with him. They were co-shareholders in the company with him. They said, you know, we can't let these works fall out of, out of sight. It, it would be so criminal. And of the 36 plays that Shakespeare wrote were acknowledged at that time, 18 had been printed in one type of quarto or another. There were several quartos of Hamlet. There were several uh, of different plays. Uh, some had only one quarto. And they said, we, we, can't, we can't let these fall out of the of our, of our literature. So what did they do? They rolled up their sleeves and they spent probably had to be at least two years trying to track down his manuscripts. They, because had been part of the company, they had sides from the parts they had played. They went to their fellow actors and said, do you still have that part of Festy written down? Do you still have that part of Olivia? Do you still have that part of Viola? And they put it together and they edited this to put all 36 of his plays into one volume, which is known as the first folio of Shakespeare has 36 plays. If that had not been printed, which it was in 1623, if that had not been printed, we would not have Twelfth Night. We would not have Julius Caesar. You would not have The Tempest. You would not have Annie and Cleopatra. You would not have 16 of his greatest, greatest plays. They wouldn't exist if Hemings and Condal hadn't rolled up their sleeves and gotten to work. Isn't that incredible? God, what a gift. I mean, that's that's like very significant work that they did. You sometimes those are like the unsung historians or contributors to our collective history. That's an amazing story. I love that. Well, tell me a little bit about your playwriting then. You've been inspired obviously by Shakespeare. When did you start being a playwright yourself and what is your process? Well, thank you. I I Always wanted to be in the theater as long as I can remember from the age of about 10 or five or six. Uh, my mother grew up in Brooklyn. And so when every Christmas time we'd go back and visit her parents, my grandparents, my mom and dad took my brother and me to a Broadway show. So I saw a Broadway show from the time I was about eight, 10 years old. And I was mesmerized. And the only thing I wanted to do was be in the theater. That's it. That's all I wanted to do. So uh, I go to high school in little York, Pennsylvania. I go to um, 
college. And at the end of college, my parents say, well, where are you going to apply now to graduate school? And I said, well, I'm not. I'm going to become a playwright. <laughs> yeah, there's a plan for making money. <laughs> yeah, good idea, huh? And uh, they said, okay, that sounds very exciting, but what are you going to do to eat? Uh, uh, we think you should apply to a, a graduate school and get a degree. Well, I was ornery, and, and but I said, all right, I'll, I'll apply to one school. So I applied to Harvard Law School, and I got in. That's awesome. What a great story. <laughs> I think the I think the admissions department sat around and looked at my especially because I wrote in my application I wrote in the essay I don't want to be a lawyer under any circumstances I want to go into the theater and I thought that'll get rid of me I'll never get in so they must have sat They're around like diversity we need someone like you <laughs> well, that's a good thought that's a good thought I was thinking to myself they probably said well the hell with him we'll fix him good right. uh, uh, so we'll let him in so I went to Harvard Law School and then I went I got a scholarship to Cambridge University I went there so I was overeducated I finished Harvard Law School and I had no money so I getting out of Harvard Law School I had nothing to do but to practice law because I couldn't add it put a meal on the table. So I practiced law for a couple of years, but while I was practicing law, I was writing in the mornings. Nice. Every morning, religiously, I got up at four o'clock in the morning, took my shower, put on my jeans, and uh, wrote from 4.30 to 8.30. And it was it became a religious experience. It was what I did. Writing in the morning is always best, too. It's quiet. Awesome. No sounds in your head of anything else. And I did that. And I wrote about four plays over the next three or four years, done in, uh, got one done in a church basement in Washington, D.C. Got one, uh, uh, this was in Washington. I got a second one done in a slightly bigger church basement, so I thought I was making real good progress. And then a crazy thing happened. I, I met someone at a party who was a director from London, and he said, oh, oh, you're a playwright. What have you written recently? And I'd written a play called Lend Me a Tenor. And uh, he said, could I read it? And I, I, I gave it to him. He read it on the way home in the plane. Uh, he calls me from England and says, oh, I like this play. It's a great comedy. I'd like to direct it. And I'd like to show it to a producer friend of mine. Well, because I was a youngster and because when you're a youngster, you're a real jackass. I played it cagey. I, I said, well, you know, I didn't want to look like an idiot, you know, uh, and a nobody. So I said, well, you know, I know a lot of producers, too. Uh, 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 you know, I didn't say two, but, I, you know, I, I, I know some producers and, 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 and I have some interest in the play already, which I didn't. He said he wanted to show it to this producer friend. I said, what, what's your friend's name? And he said, Andrew Lloyd Webber. So I said, okay. You're like, um, okay, no, I don't really. No, let me think about it. Yes, okay, show it to him. Well, <laughs> the end of the story is very simple. Andrew called me two weeks later, having read it, and said, I love your play. I want to put it up in the West End. If you give me the rights to produce it, when you produce it, it means you raise the money and hire the director. Right. He had produced a couple, two other plays in his lifetime before this one uh, that weren't by him. And uh, he produced it in the West End. We won all the awards. It was up within six months of our, our conversation. It played in the West End. Andrew then produced it in New York. It was a big hit in New York. It won Tony's and Tony's. And, and uh, then soon after that, I wrote another a musical called Crazy For You. And that played on Broadway for five years at the Schubert Theater and won Best 
musical and best everything. And, and so I was on my way. I was able to leave the law behind, not because I didn't like the law. Let me just say I really did. Uh, but this is what I had always dreamed of doing. And ever since then, I've written plays. I've now written 28 plays. Look at you. It's incredible. Uh, and your most recent one is a big award winner. Tell us about that. Uh, thank you. Uh, it's called Dear Jack, Dear Louise. Most of my plays are what I would call muscular comedies. I love that tradition of much ado about nothing. And Twelfth, Twelfth Night and uh, Taming the Shrew and Comedy of Errors and Merry Wives of Windsor. I love that that wonderful tradition and As You Like It. And, and of course, the greatest of them all, Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, so I've spent my life writing comedy, really kind of all out muscular comedies. But uh, about two years ago, I got the idea of writing a play about my parents. Huh. Uh, we had known in the family that my parents met during World War II, and they met by letter. Oh, love it. My father had become a doctor. He had put himself through medical school. He grew up in Coatesville, Pennsylvania, and worked in the steel mill, Lucan Steel Mills in Coatesville, Pennsylvania, and put himself through college and then medical school. And the minute he was done medical school, he was drafted and sent all the way out to Medford, Oregon, to uh, attend to the incoming wounded of, from the Pacific Theater. Wow. Meanwhile, my mother was this Brooklyn gal who wanted to be in the theater herself and was taking tap dancing lessons and singing lessons. And they didn't know each other. So, but their fathers knew each other. Interesting. Their father said, you two should get to know each other. Here's her, Jack, that was my dad's name. Here's her address in Brooklyn, write her a letter. So he wrote her a letter. She wrote back and their correspondence lasted for four years during World War II. That's incredible. And they fell in love by letter. And finally, at the end, he flew back and they got married. Is that incredible? And so your play is based on those letters? The play is based... Now, my mother destroyed the letters before she passed away because she felt they were so intimate Mm. in those days, whatever that meant. Well, they feel private. They felt personal. They felt private and personal. So what I did is I wrote this, what I conceived would be this series of letters. And the whole play is epistolary, meaning it's all letters. And it's their letters back and forth performed by two people on the stage, not just at desks. They were up and walking around. The world premiere was at Arena Stage uh, here in Washington, D.C. It's now heading for Broadway. Uh, big, big shot Broadway producers going to produce it. And it opened over Christmas, played in December, January here. And immediately, of course, COVID hit. So it has been sitting now in the drawer uh, since then. A few people are doing it on Zoom that we allow, but we don't want to ruin the Broadway prospect because if too many people do it now. But we may reduce, but we're thinking of maybe releasing rights to certain people to do it. A good friend of mine wanted to do it with his wife, and there's a three-theater deal up in New England, and I've said, okay, because he's an old friend. So it's the story of their meeting and their courtship during World War II, told through these letters, and it's only two actors. So in many ways, it's pretty good for the COVID. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. It seems like um, just such a lovely time capsule, too, because letter writing has really been lost uh, in the digital age. And so I would think that would also 
you know, create a different experience, a different sense of what relationship building is like when it is through writing as opposed to swiping right on Tinder or, you know, sort of this Facebook culture that we have now. Um, that's really beautiful. I well, love very, that. Very much so. And it's, well, I, I, luckily, Knockwood, it, it won the MacArthur Award as the best play of the year. So I was thrilled about that. That happened just about a month ago. Fabulous. And Arena Stage just let me know something they want to do, which is they're going to. So they have so many patrons and it's hard to keep track, you know, keep not keep track and keep 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 in contact with them over this this period. And they're going to do a project where they tell this story with real letters that are handwritten and sent to all of their patrons who will receive these letters and get them in the mail weekly. Wow, what a cool idea. That's so that's Isn't that a cool idea? Yeah, it's very good. I yeah. like it a lot. That's wonderful. Well, where can we find out more about you? You have a newly designed website. You want to talk about that for a minute? I do. I'd love to. <laughs> I, I, I'm shamefully proud of it because it took so so long. To Websites do. are such a job. <laughs> uh, it's it's easy to find. It's just kenludwig.com or www.kenludwig.com. However you do it, just put it into your uh, browser. And and it was a real labor of love because. I've had I've had a website for years and years, and I think I could be proved wrong, but I think I may have been the first playwright in America, at least, to ever have a website. I can tell you this: my my third play on Broadway called Moon Over Buffalo, which starred Carol Burnett. Oh yeah, uh, I know that one. <laughs> Lynn Redgrave and um, uh, Robert Goulet, at one point Joan Collins in London. It was the first show in history to ever itself have a website. That's amazing. That's okay. yeah. So I, 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 I had a website uh, for myself uh, after that uh, for the past about 15, 20 years. And finally, it got you know, uh, uh, rickety and, and you know, they uh, wasn't supported. And that people couldn't still write me questions and stuff. So I, I did a big push over the last nine months to create a new website and hired a web design, beautiful web designer. And it's very beautiful and it's filled got and I put decided I'd put puzzles and games on it oh, about my shows. Yeah. And all my past writings about the theater and nice. on mostly on lots on Shakespeare, but lots on playwriting and lots on Jane Austen and stuff like that. So yeah. So our families who are looking for more teaching from you and more sharing along this lines will find things on the website they can use in homeschooling with their kids. It sounds like. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's fabulous. My gosh, that is uh, this has just been a complete treat. And I, now I really want to see this. Dear Jack, Dear Lu Louise, was that yeah. the title? Yeah, yeah that yeah. sounds amazing. Um, I'm really, uh, congratulations. It sounds like you've just had an incredible career. And that in itself is inspiring as well because we have students in these families who may have aspirations that look like they would not be lucrative or safe careers. And yet here you found a way to fulfill your childhood dream and to live out your passion, which is pretty awesome. Thank you. And what I tell kids all the time, and I and they should do, is you just got to love what you do. It's got to come from your heart. If you don't, you, you'll, you'll never be as happy. My dad said to me early on, if you don't wake up in the morning and look forward to going to work, mm. something's wrong and you've got to go fix it because you've just got to get up every day of your life and look forward to the day. I, I think that's so important. Truly. 
Truly. And when you're in a vocation that feels congruent with that experience of life, that that makes you happy, you're actually better at that skill as well. They feed each other. Well, I have just thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's just been wonderful. Uh, Julie, I haven't had so much fun since uh, uh, in a long time. It's been really fun talking to you. It's really fun. How good was that conversation? I love talking to people who've taken their passions and turned them into their careers. It's a great role model for all of us, isn't it? If you want to learn more about what Ken does, visit his website at kenludwig.com. There are some gorgeous photos from the plays that have been produced, and I think you and your kids will really enjoy taking a look at them. I also highly recommend purchasing his book, How to Teach Your Children Shakespeare. It would be a great volume to start using going into the new year, so I highly recommend that. As we are winding down the 2020 year, I want to remind you that our winter spring online writing classes for Brave Writer are now enrolling. I highly recommend signing up for classes even before the end of the year, because what we know from what happened in the fall is that our classes sold out lickety split. And that's because during the year of the pandemic, the volume of families who are interested in online classes is double what it was a year ago. So if you know which class you want for your child, be sure to go and sign up now. You can do that by going to class.bravewriter.com slash register. I'll say that again, class.bravewriter.com slash register. We can't wait to serve you and your kids in an online writing class this winter and spring. Finally, I just want to take a moment to wish you and your family a safe, happy, and loving holiday. I know it's not going to be the usual end of the year celebration for any of us, but we at Brave Writer and in the Brave Learner home support you and want to do whatever we can to help this year of schooling be one that leads you to joy and academic excellence. Thank you for letting us be a part of your lives. Happy New Year. Let's really cross our fingers that 2021 will turn the corner. And in the meantime, keep going. We are all rooting for you.